Marks and Chris Stadler are the national co-chairs of No Labels. Howard is the director and co-chairman of Oak Tree Capital Management, a global investment management firm with headquarters in Los Angeles. Chris Stadler is a managing partner at CBC Capital Partners, based in New York. Today, they will discuss the recent changes, trends, and developments in financial markets. Let's listen in. So, Howard, um, I know we've talked about this a bit, and it has been a, a bit of a head scratcher. Uh, why do you think markets are so strong relative to the economy, and do you feel they've, they've gotten ahead of themselves? Well, first of all, Chris, I want to say how glad I am to be doing this with you today, both both partnering in, as uh, national co-chairs of No Labels, but also engaging in this dialogue today. And, and uh, uh, you're good to take the uh, position of asking the questions. You're you're no you're no uh, you're not chopped liver yourself in the <laughs> world. Uh, but uh, you know, um, I can tell you why I think the market has bounced so much. I can't tell you why those things happened in every case. But, but uh, you know, they, there, are, uh, there are factors in a number of categories. Number one, uh, the most people, uh, uh, let's say, the Fed and the Treasury are throwing incredible arsenal of weapons at the problem. And they have indicated that they're going to do everything they can think of. And they're going to do it without limitation as to amount and duration, essentially. Uh, you know, two days ago, for example, Powell said he's not even he's not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. So, you know, it looks like rates will stay lower for longer, et cetera. And, uh, you know, the Fed has been buying uh, trillions of dollars of securities and the Treasury has been is- using trillions of dollars of support. So, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the mantra nowadays is you can't fight the Fed. And, uh, you know, the, what the Fed wants to happen will happen. If it wants interest rates to be low, rates will be low. If it wants uh, the markets to be strong, the markets will be strong. And people believe that. Now, it's not, it's not necessarily absolutely true. There are, there, are, there are doubts about it, but right now it's accepted. Uh, so, so the hyperactive Fed and Treasury. Uh, most people conclude that that will produce an economic rebound. Uh, now, you know, for for uh, for months, people have been talking about a V-shaped recovery, um, and they they mostly still are. Um, I don't think it's going to be a a V in the sense that, well, we know that this quarter is going to be terrible. And then we know that the third quarter will show an improvement because already we're opening. And so uh, m- more businesses will be open, more people will be working, more people will be traveling, more people will be driving. Uh, you know, there'll be more of everything. So there's no question about the fact that we're going to have a serial, what we call a quarter over quarter improvement. Uh, it'll st- it will still be down year over year, the, the third quarter of 20 will be anemic relative to the third quarter of 19, but it'll look good relative to the second quarter of 20. So there'll be, a, uh, there'll be from now on out, there'll be every quarter will get better. Now, how fast will it get better? Uh, I don't, as I said, uh, Chris, I don't think we're gonna have a V. I think we're gonna have what I would call a check mark, down and then up for a long time. Gradual, 
maybe fits and starts. Uh, certainly the air is not going to go back in the balloon uh, at the rate it went out. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, in 2021, GDP and earnings will probably not be up to the 2019 level. Uh, it'll probably take, I, I would say, at least until 2022. But the point is that most people today are granting that there will be an economic recovery and they're happy to look across the valley. And they're not being too precise, in my opinion, about how long the valley is going to last. And I think that the recovery will be gradual. First of all, each of the each of the people on this call should ask themselves, well, when are you going back to work? When are you going to get on a commercial airplane? When are you going to get in the subway and go to work or on a bus? Um, and when are you going to go to a restaurant and so forth? And my own belief is that people who have the choice will not be rushing back to the office and or to the or to the store. And so I think that the recovery will be gradual. Uh, I heard Hank Paulson the other day, and he knows as well as anybody. And he said that half the people who are out of work today will be back at work this year. Half. Uh, and and uh, a fair number of, of the jobs that were lost will never come back. And uh, a fair number of small and medium-sized enterprises, which account for most of the growth in the U.S. economy, will never reopen. And I well, think... You know that, I think that's a great point, and I think uh, you know uh, you and I have talked about this before. We certainly see it at the end of any uh, of any expansion, right? When your revenue's been going up, it's you know a difficult thing to to fire people and to and to uh, to optimize your business. And and when revenues are flowing in, you generally don't do that, right? You don't make those choices. But then when you're forced to deal with less in an environment like this and you realize you can be a lot more productive than you thought, I think those jobs are then sticky on the way back up. Right, right. So anyway, so number one, uh, a powerful Fed and Treasury, hyperactive. Number two, a, an economic recovery, look across the valley. Uh, number three, low interest rates. Low interest rates stimulate economic activity. They make other things look attractive. So you look at Maybe you used to have some money in, in cash and you got 2%. And now you look and you say, oh, it's zero now. I, want, I have to find a new place for my money. Maybe the stock market. Or you look, you maybe used to have some treasuries that paid 2%. Now you say, oh, the 10-year pays a half a percent so I'm, or eight-tenths. I'm going to go out and buy some stocks or I'm going to buy some. Uh, I, can't, I can't live with the yield, the low yield on high-quality bonds. I'm going to buy some low-quality bonds. So low-quality bonds have been extremely strong. So everything is is relative and comparative. And when you drop interest rates, uh, the, the Fed, then everything else looks very attractive. And we, you know, when we buy companies, when you when Chris buys companies, we look at something called the discounted present value of the future cash flows. And you discount them at a rate. So when interest rates go down, you discount them at a lower rate, which means that they're that the discounted present value is higher. So interest rates are important. And then there are psychological factors. You know, uh, and uh, this 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 recovery started off. You know, the the low was reached on March 23rd. That was the day before the Fed uh, announced its plans. It, uh, that it was that it was before it announced that it was going to announce its plans. And it, on the 24th, 5th, and 6th, we had the strongest three days in the stock market in over 80 years. You have to go back to the 1930s to have a stronger three days. 
and, and people started to rush into the market. There's something called FOMO, the fear of missing out. And, and, and when, the, you know, when, when the party gets going, FOMO, the fear of missing out, takes over from the fear of losing money. And everybody's afraid they're going to miss it. So they gang in, they, they jump on the bandwagon, and the bandwagon starts to go stronger. And, uh, and I think there, there has been some of that. And we finally, uh, there, is e there, there are even stories. A lot of the buying apparently has been done by what we call the little guy. Not institutions, but uh, but the little guy. And uh, you know the story is that there are a lot of people out there who would be going to the casinos if they were open, but they're not, or who would be betting on sports if there were sports betting, but there's no sports. So they need action, and they're taking their thousand dollar checks from the government and they're buying stocks and options. And you know the the market does appear to to behave that way. It was up in the in the 53 trading days after March, the March 23rd low, the market was up on 23 of them, 33 out of 53. And it, like 25 times, the market was up more than a percent in a day, which is not that normal. So the market has been extremely strong. I have trouble. I mean, the, the point is, as of Monday night, which was the the, the recent high, the stock market was almost back to its February 19th all-time high and uh, was, was almost up for the year. Now, if you, if you said, you know, if you described the, the pandemic and if you described what would be, have to be done to the economy to fight the pandemic, you wouldn't say, well, stocks shouldn't be down but they practically weren't as of Monday night. And to me, that seemed irrationally positive. And, uh, you know, I said on, I said on uh, CNBC a few weeks ago, I said the market's down 15% for the, from the high and the world is more than 15% screwed up. But the point is that we have people who are ready to look past the bad and consider it like a one-time thing that's going away and, and, and incorporate the good. And the truth is that in the real world, things fluctuate between pretty good and not so hot. But in the in the uh, markets, things go from flawless to hopeless and back. And as of Monday night, they, uh, people were, you know, on March 23rd, it was hopeless. And on Monday night, it was kind of flawless again. Then we had a sl small down day on Tuesday and Wednesday, and then a big down day uh, yesterday, down 1800 on the Dow, uh, back up 500 today or 600, I forget, it's 500, I guess. But, uh, you know, it's fluctuating like crazy, but, you know, great investors, I'm gonna stop talking in a minute, but great investors like Stan Druckenmiller, Stan Druckenmiller said uh, around May 12th, and he may be the greatest investor who ever lived, that he said that he's, he, he, it's the worst risk return bargain he's ever seen. David Tepper, who's another fabulous investor, said it's the second worst because he thought it was worse back in 1999 in the tech bubble. But the point is that a lot of highly disciplined quality investors think things are too high, by the way. So, so, so uh, Druckenmiller said he's never seen a worse risk return opportunity. He said that on May 12th, and then the market went up uh, about uh, another 11%. <laughs> so uh, it, hasn't, it hasn't cooperated with Stan yet. But I, I, I do think that it, it, it does smack to me of uh, being too high. 
Well, you know, you and I talked about this. I think when we started our careers, there was much more of a weight um, in market movements on a regular basis of the fundamentals. Um, And the technicals would certainly have their place. And there were times where they could dominate, but not the dominance that they're showing really over the last three or four years relative to the fundamentals. Well, I think that's right, Chris. And and the point is that uh, one of the reasons is that we have more people being evaluated based on their short-term performance. And number two, we have more people looking at short-term performance. Now, when I, when I was started off in this business in the late 60s, at the end of the year, you may not relate to this, but at the end of the year, it, it took a few days to figure out what your return was for the year because we had to do a lot of grinding calculations without any computers and, and really without any calculators. And, and of course, now, uh, not only do you get your performance instantaneously at the end of each quarter and year, but you get it in real time every minute. So there's just this obsession with, uh, with uh, short-term performance, and everybody's terrified of being in any stocks that go up less than the other stocks. And, you know, it strikes me that imagine you were on a boat and uh, the captain came on the loudspeaker and he said, everybody run to the left and they run over there. <laughs> then he comes on, he says, everybody run to the right and they run over there. And, you know, you get terrible volatility and, and not much progress. And, uh, and uh, I think that's, that's what we have. Well, you know, your point about um, FOMO before, um, the way I like to talk about it with my, uh, my staff is to say, look, um, you need to be first and foremost scared to death of losing money. Right. Um, and you need to always have that front of mind. But you actually have to be just as afraid or a little bit more of being irrelevant because you got to get the money out. Yeah. Right. And and that balance um, as an investor is is critical and, and having a sense of where you are in the market, um, you know, to know uh, which of those two instincts to be paying a bit more attention to is, right. is so really if, important. Because, Chris, I agree with you 100 percent. The way I put it is that there are two risks that everybody, every investor faces every day. There's the risk of losing money, which is obvious. And there's the risk of missing opportunity, which is a little more subtle. And you can't, if you eliminate one, then you're 100% exposed to the other. So we have to compromise them. And we have to say, well, I don't want to lose a lot of money. But on the other hand, I don't want to miss all the opportunities. So you balance the two. But what we see in the market is that we see a a day like March 23rd when people are only afraid of losing money and then nobody is afraid of missing opportunity. And then you see a day like, like the 8th of June when everybody's afraid of missing opportunity and nobody's afraid of losing money. And that's what gives us this rocky passage uh, that I described. Um, I, uh, I think we'll, what we'll do is we'll, we'll go back and forth between some of our uh, questions and what p- people are asking here. So I'll, I'll first, uh, first I want to recognize, I believe that Congressman Brad Schneider is on. Congressman, are you with us? I am uh, listening. Thank you. And uh, I appreciate the perspective. I share much of it. Glad to be here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Um, um, if you uh, if you have a question, I'll take it. If not, um, I've got a few others. Or if you uh, if there's something you'd like to add, Byron Wayne, I have a question. Come on, Byron, fire away. Okay. Uh, uh, 
seems to me, Howard, that that there's an important segment of the economy that's still in serious trouble. Um, you have uh, hotels, airlines, restaurants. Um, depending on how you define that, that's at least 10% of the economy, and it could be as much as 30. Plus, there are a number of us who aren't going back to work very quickly because uh, we're compromised by our age or our physical condition. So uh, when do you think, you talked about when you think the stock market might get back to where it was. When do you think earnings are going to get back to where they were in 2019? Well, I, th I think most of us look at the earnings for the S&P 500. That's the popular uh, benchmark for the, uh, for the stock market. And they, we calculate the collective earnings for those companies. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know any, any better than anybody else, Byron, but I think there's a, there's a chance that they, I, I guess they'll probably get back to the 19 level in 21. Uh, uh, in, in 2020, uh, in 21, in 19, they were $158. This year, I think they were expected to be about 173. Uh, now they're expected to be at about 120 or so, and I think it'll be uh, uh, certainly until maybe 20, late 21, 22, before they're running at the at the 158 rate again. And and uh, you know we we're going to be missing a couple of years of growth, maybe permanently. Hi, Howard. Brazilian Vanier from uh, oh, Okay, great. Go ahead. Uh, Howard, you've uh, written. 13 years ago, famous memos to clients criticizing excessive leverage, even if some of your teams didn't always follow your advice. Now with trillions of debt added to the balance sheet of governments and corporates, this looks like a huge worldwide LBO. How do we recover from this? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, when I was a kid, there used to be a debate about whether it was okay for nations to have debt. Uh, we seem to have gotten past that. Um, Lord Keynes said he thought that, it, that, that, that nations should run deficits in times of weakness in order to cre it, it encourage job creation. And then in times of prosperity should run surpluses and repay the debt. We seem to have gotten past that. So, so all nations now are permanent debtors. And the only question is what's too much debt? And of course, there's no way to calculate what too much debt is. Most nations appear hell bent on finding out the hard way. Uh, so I, I don't, you know, there's really, there's really nothing we can say about whether it's 50% of GDP, 100%, 150% of GDP, 200%, and, and, and nobody knows. But, you know, uh, I guess no labels is always pushing for unity in Washington. And I think that the that the uh, lawmakers have found something that they're united on, which is that they don't care about deficits and debt. And uh, you know, historically, the the Democrats were supposed to be the part of the party of spending, and the Republicans were supposed to be the party of of fiscal prudence. But they did unanimously back Trump's um, uh, tax bill in 2017, which created, which was, which this year was going to create a, a 1.3 trillion dollar deficit in times of prosperity. So uh, the point is, nobody cares about uh, the level of deficit and debt anymore. 
Um, there is something out there called modern monetary theory, which, which explicitly says that deficits and debt don't matter. And uh, I don't think the theory is winning today, just the result is winning today. Uh, we are not, we're not running huge deficits and debt now because people subscribe to modern monetary theory. We are running huge deficits and debt because the Fed and the Treasury concluded that they had to do that to rescue the economy. Or, or otherwise, it was going to slip into a worldwide depression. And I, I, was, I was talking depression just before they came out with their actions around March 18th, 19th. I was musing with my partner as to whether we would have a depression. Um, and that, but so I believe that I believe that what the Fed and Treasury are doing is absolutely necessary, but dangerous. Now, so, so in answer to the question, then Howard, are they restoring order and proper function to markets, or are they distorting the way markets price risk? I, I guess oh, the I answer think, is I, I, yes. I, yes, I think. Well, I think they're distorting the market, Chris. <laughs> I think that I think when the when the government stays out, you get you get a, a, a functioning market, which, which uh, most of the time, I should say, which prices things about right. And it happens that people were panicking, as I described, thing, the market was gonna melt down, companies needing money were, were gonna find it impossible to get money or refinance their debts. And so uh, the, the Fed and Treasury came in and did what they did. Certainly they have distorted the market. The price is being paid for stocks and uh, and uh, low quality bonds, or maybe all bonds, are certainly higher than they would be in a normally functioning economy. And uh, uh, you know, uh, they just will not let companies that need money fail to get it. And the way that they're they're getting the money to them is by making the markets uh, uh, extremely generous, so that people are afraid to not make investments in stocks and bonds. And they're, they're forcing the capital markets to accommodate companies. So I do think it's a distortion. Uh, let's take these um, in some of the order that people have um, jumped in. Glenn Lowenstein, are, Glenn, are you there? Yeah, so, so um, thank you, Chris and Howard, for doing this. Um, I've been on two Zoom calls today, one with public market investors, one with private real estate. And both calls, the consensus was there was very little confidence that the government will provide leadership out of both COVID and racial injustice, and that uh, in both cases, private sector would have to do that. And so, or, or, or focus more on, on racial injustice, I guess, for this question. You guys both run companies, you both lead companies. What is your sense of that? And what is your messaging to your companies right now? Well, Chris, you own a bunch of companies. What, what are you telling your managements? Um, I think, Glenn, that that um, that, that you're right, and um, I'll actually talk a little bit about an, a non-for-profit board I chair called Global Citizen, um, and almost our entire budget is from corporate sponsorships as a not-for-profit, and and this is over fifty million dollar budget. And that would have been unheard of a few years ago. And that's because the corporates are under tremendous pressure um, to really make these issues front and center. Um, it used to be 
a backwater within your company, you know, sustainability or um, community relations, you know, that was somewhere within the, um, you know, the HR department. You know, now this is a CEO issue. We own an advisory firm called Teneo that that advises um, that advises more of the Fortune uh, uh, 500 than than just about anybody on strategic communications, and and we see this all the time. That th- this is something now where your customers care, right? So you got these supply, you know, su- the supplier requirements uh, that you might meet that you might need to meet from your customers. Your Employees really care, especially if they're young. Your regulators care. The communities in which you operate care. And I've seen a swing in this issue. Um, and, and I'll start be, before the issue you got to, Glenn, around the Paris Accords, right? When the president pulled out, just about all the big companies in the United States said, we're staying in. We, you know, we're going to meet the requirements of the Paris Accord. And I think you're seeing the same kind of reaction to the protests this week. Um, and, and I think you're, you're going to see that the corporates realize that they need to do something and first and foremost for their own population. And so it's a source of optimism for me. And so we're very forward on my, my firm is originally based in Europe. And so on ESG in general, um, our pension fund investors really care about it. So it's been very, very important to us for the last five or six years. So we're, we're very forward on what we're doing there. Um, and I think with this issue, it, it is going to be the same. We're, we're fortunate that given we operate in so many different markets, we are very diverse, but, but not in every way that you can measure it and, and not in every office that we operate, not in every market that we operate. And so um, I, I think, and you know, I'm very hopeful that, that corporates will be leaders here because to a certain extent, the, the governments are having a difficult time landing on what they want to do. I'll take, a, I'll take a slightly different tack. I want to believe that the governments will get involved. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that we can accomplish so much more with, 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 with leadership. And, uh, you know, uh, I think that one of the reasons we struggled with the COVID problem is that we did not have national leadership. And so we had a patchwork uh, pattern of behavior in, uh, in the states. Uh, and... Uh, we didn't have uh, we we obviously didn't have central encouragement of social distancing or masks or or anything like that. And uh, I I I'd like to get I think that the I think the central government can do a lot. And uh, you know I I want I want them to come out and and express leadership. Thanks, Glenn. Um, Joel Thank Myers. You. Yeah, thanks, uh, Howard. Very very fascinating comments. I would add to your list of one of the greatest long term investors, Warren Buffett, also has a great deal of cash. And, and in the past, when the market sold off dramatically, he would put some of it to use. But just interestingly, he put very little or none of it to use to actually seem to be selling. So clearly, the Fed has made cash worthless, which is harmful to savers, forcing them, and as you've said, into risky investments. What happens when the Fed loses control and rates take off and they have no control anymore? And when do you think that'll happen? Well, that's that's what we used to call the $64 question when we were young. Um, um, I will say, Joel, that number one, uh, people have been saying for years that interest rates would go down, go up. And one of the biggest uh, consensus mistakes of the last five years was that belief. And, uh, you know, if you go back 
I would say three years ago, maybe four, there was absolute near unanimity that rates would go up. And of course they didn't. Uh, and one of the great mysteries uh, uh, is why we don't have higher rates. And, it's, and in particular, that's because why don't we have inflation? And it, we had such, it, it, normally inflation was, was believed to be governed by something called the Phillips curve, which said that the lower the, inf, uninflation, the, the lower the unemployment would be, the less slack there would be in the economy, the more negotiating power labor would have, inflation would go up. Well, it didn't happen. And the, all around the world, governments want, want inflation and they can't get it. And without inflation, I don't know if we're going to get uh, um, uh, uh, rising rising interest rates. And uh, you know, now uh, the the thing arguing for for inflation is 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 the monetary issue and the impact of all this debt and deficit. Uh, we don't have a strong enough economy for demand to you know. To an excess of demand over supply would normally cause inflation, but I don't think demand's going to be strong enough. I think that people uh, are, are likely to sit on their money. There's a negative wealth effect. Everybody feels poorer than they used to feel. They're not going to spend their money. Most people have learned to live without spending as a pastime uh, and uh, have learned that they don't need so many suits and ties and, and uh, things of that nature. So uh, I, I, I don't personally think we're going to get inflation unless the macro issue of uh, debt and deficit uh, takes off. Yeah, but it, let me just challenge. So there was near uniformity uh, that interest rates are going to go up. And clearly when there's near uniformity, interest rates go the other way. When there's near uniformity about anything, it always goes the other way because you have 100% of people already in. Right now, it seems 100% the other way, which is a bit scary that rates can stay near zero forever. and and uh, Inflation may be, may not have to drive it next time. There's just so much money, but that's a separate debate. But right. thank you for your comment. Sure. Well, I think it is that that issue of market confidence and whether or not that can do it. The only other thing that I think could could start to create pockets of inflation is if we were to continue down the road we were heading prior to COVID, which is around protectionism, tariffs. Um, if that's followed up by hey, we need a lot more industries with supply chains here in the U.S. Um, and as a result of what we're seeing right now uh, on the equality issue, um, you know, more wage gains are, are pushed into the system. You know, those kind of things could do it. But I, I think it's going to take I think it's going to take a lot. Um, let's head over to Omar Simmons. Oh, hey, guys. Um, thanks for the talk. Um, I definitely agree with your view on the public markets. I'd be curious to see how you view the credit markets and the private equity markets um, and how that might evolve because those have different drivers and maybe a, a little less volatile on a day-to-day -day basis, but they really has a big impact on well, the market businesses. Yeah, I, th I think that the, the credit markets have been, uh, I mean, they're no, they're, they're almost never as volatile as the stock market, but they've been very volatile too. Uh, if you, you know, one of the things we do at our firm is high yield bonds. And if you, if you go back to early February, high yield bonds were yielding three and a half percent. If you leave out energy, energy, which was struggling so badly, uh, was required high yield. So they were pulling up the average yield. But if you leave energy out of the equation, 
the average high yield bond yielded three and a half percent, which obviously isn't very high. Uh, and then that was that was early February. By March 23rd, at the low, high yield bonds were yielding about ten and a half percent. So the yield tripled, and of course, the way the yield triples is by the price falling. Uh, so we went from having a penalty yield of three and a half to a a lush yield of ten and a half. And then since then, the 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 Fed has been flooding the world with money every time. So the Fed goes out and they buy securities. Every time they buy securities, they put money in people's hands. The people whose money they whose hands they put money into have to go out and get rid of that money. They have to buy something. So that causes demand, and the the demand for high yield bonds has been so strong that the yield is now down to about six point two percent. So it it has gone down more than halfway from its high of ten and a half. And uh, so I think that that right now uh, credit is is uh, pretty freely available, and people are competing to put money to work. And when they compete to put money to work, they bid up the price, uh, which means they bid down the yield. And when somebody says, I want 8% to lend money, somebody else says, I'll do it at seven and a half. Somebody says, I'll take seven. Somebody says, I'll take six and a half. And it's what I call the race to the bottom. But when there's too much money, that's what happens. And it, it has been happening uh, ever since the Fed announced its plans. Uh, now, private equity, uh, you might want to talk to Chris about that. Uh, he's not that active in the U.S., but maybe he has a, a view on, on uh, values in the private equity space. Yeah, look, I think um, with respect to private equity, it's very similar factors. Uh, what private equity has benefited from um, for a very long term, and each time I think that trick is played out, something else happens. And so it was um, gaining a bigger allocation um, within the portfolio of big pension funds. Then it was having it spread to more investors. Then those big pension funds um, decided that they wanted even more of an, an, uh, an allocation in, uh, in alternatives, in the chase for yield. And, and frankly, when I thought most of it was, was kind of done, I think the hedge funds over a 10-year period were not kind of earning their fees, were not beating markets. And some money came out of hedge funds and into private equity. And then um, on the demand side, the other side of the equation, owners or the people who run businesses don't like being in the public markets. And so they they prefer being private, given how difficult it is being a CEO. And so we've kind of been in a virtuous circle for a long time. And the question for me becomes, how much are investors going to continue to be willing to allocate to private equity and how many managers are going to continue to want to be out of the public, uh, the business of running public companies. Because every time I think it can't get any worse to be as public company CEO, something happens to make it worse. Um, and so we continue to own an increasingly large share of the world's companies. And, you know, I think regulators, policymakers may have something to say about just how much of that can happen as investors will, we are certainly seeing, you know, what we thought was going to be a great buying opportunity. Prices are not coming down. Um, there's a lot of money to put out there. And so I, I think it is, uh, it is going to remain tricky. And, and what I like about that is what it requires us to do is actually run the businesses better. And I think private equity, because they are aligned, 
They are, we are invested with our own money. That's how we get wealthy. Um, when we're on boards, it is our day job. You know, I think we can uh, do that. Um, whether we can do it with as much money as we have is going to be a pretty interesting question. Um, David Mech. Hi, thanks so much. Um, I've been watching what's going on in the public equity markets regarding the mania and certain stocks, and Hertz is a uh, stock that a lot of people have been talking about in the last few days where it filed for bankruptcy, and yet, as we were talking, the judge in the case in bankruptcy has allowed them to uh, raise roughly a billion dollars in new equity through selling shares. So um, I would love to get some perspective from you guys on um, if that makes sense, if, if that should be permissible, um, and what that says about overall uh, public markets. Well, first of all, David, I want to thank you for the way you ended your question. Uh, uh, what, one of the things that I always try to look at is not what's happening, but what does it mean? And that's, that's, what you, well, that's what you asked. What does it mean about the public markets? I think it's very unusual. I think it's unique for a company in bankruptcy to be able to raise equity. Usually they raise, they, they borrow money, what's called a debtor in possession loan, which goes into the capital structure at the very highest level because the person who's putting new money into a bankrupt company wants to be protected. Now the money is going in at the lowest level, which is the equity level. And that says a lot about the market. It says that it has a, a speculative tone. And, you know, uh, what they call things tells you a lot about what's going on in the markets. And in, in, in good times, they called it rescue finance. And in bad times, they call it throwing good money after bad. And I think the fact that we have a bankrupt company that can raise equity money tells you that, it, that people are, are in a speculative mood. And you know, they're, 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 they're viewing uh, Hertz's depressed, equity as a, uh, uh, a gambling opportunity uh, where, you know, it's, it's so low, maybe if there's a miracle, you can make a big return. Usually people who put money into bankrupt situations like us want a very high degree of protection. And obviously the fact that people are willing to invest without it tells you we're in a speculative market. Thank you. Okay, um, Bob Zeidman. Okay, Howard, thanks for this. This is interesting. Uh, I have a question, uh, and then depending on your answer, or maybe regardless, I'd like to make a comment afterwards. But I'd like to know your thoughts on Tesla. Tesla. Well, I, I you know, I don't invest in stocks, uh, and and uh, I really, I really um, have nothing to say. But uh, uh, sounds like you do. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I can say something quickly. I, you know, because I think maybe the people on this call, especially the members of Congress, uh, will take some notice. But um, you know, Tesla. There's uh, for years I've been following tech. I'm in tech. Been following stocks and companies for a couple of decades. Uh, Tesla is very suspicious in that uh, companies are popping up simply to promote them. They're claiming to be financial advisors without any information about who's behind them. They publish. Uh, uh, glowing reports in Tesla technology, which doesn't exist, by the way. A lot of the technology that's publicized doesn't really exist. The stock is there now, the number one automobile in the history of the planet, as far as market valuation. 
Um, they've disregarded SEC regulations, but the SEC has done little but slapped them on the wrist. And politicians throughout the country have been bending over backwards and fighting each other to give them more taxpayer money. Um, so I really think that somebody needs to investigate what's going on because the numbers are so awful at Tesla. And they play accounting games that, that need to be uh, looked into because their quarterly statements are just full of misinformation and uh, trickery. So it would be nice if somebody would investigate because that stock keeps going up and up and yet there's nothing behind it, very little behind it. Thank you. It's an interesting one um, for sure. Uh, I did want to recognize Congresswoman Torres Small, uh, which uh, has, she has joined us. If you, um, Congresswoman, um, would you like to say say hi? Have any questions for us? Sorry, I think there was a, a both of us trying to mute, unmute at the same time. But thank you all so much for allowing me to just join and frankly listen to your conversation. I'm a new member of Congress from New Mexico's second congressional district. And uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, I think, has ha made all of us learn new things about systems that we kind of took for granted. Um, so in New Mexico, it's a lot about logistics when it comes to agriculture, for example, and the impact that that has on our market. Um, you know, but beyond that, as we look at what the logistics uh, supply chain looks like for uh, COVID-19, for personal protective equipment, what it looks like, uh, how that is going to impact our economy. Uh, there's just so much that, that I've had to learn. And so I've really appreciated no labels um, with experts because as we've addressed the both the healthcare challenges and the economic challenges of COVID-19, some of the best uh, the, the best advice that I've received has come out of no labels or the problem solvers. Uh, because because when you follow markets, uh, you're following national trends, you're following international uh, trade, and, and it gives us some of the best sight into what we need to be preparing for and kind of skating towards the puck. So I'm really just here to listen and learn, and I appreciate the chance to get to join you. Well, we're very glad to have you. And, uh, you know, I, I really think that uh, uh, most of the people on this call don't have an ax to grind. Uh, we're just interested in in the truth. And and uh, in solving problems. So you're very welcome here. Uh, echo those comments. It's great to have you here and um, delighted that you've decided to join us. And, and um, I would echo your comments on what Nancy and the team have been putting together in these, in these, uh, in these calls and, and the participation that we've been getting. Uh, Patricia Chadwick, next up. Thank you. Um, Howard, I'm just wondering if you could maybe put in perspective a little bit the situation that existed in 2008, which we can definitely say we brought on ourselves, the banks over leveraged um, horrific um, mortgage mortgages that were should never have been made, et cetera, et cetera. And the government had to bail it out. And everybody at that time was saying too much money being put into the economy and it's going to become highly inflationary. Ultimately, we had, you know, there was no velocity. Whatever happened to that money, it just didn't get back into the economy <clears throat> right away. We've now gone through 12 years where the economy slowly picked up and we got the lowest unemployment rate with still very, very low inflation. If anything, a deflationary uh, environment, I think. Now we get this crisis, which we cannot blame the way we could the 2008 crisis. The same solution is being applied. Is there any real reason outside of the fact that there's more leverage now than there was before, but is there any real reason to think we won't come through this again? Certain sectors of the economy are gonna be decimated maybe forever. 
transportation, airlines, whatever, but that the rest will come around. We will have higher level, levels of debt, but we will work through this the way we worked through the last one. Well, uh, everybody should know I used to work with Patricia and, uh, and she's, a, she's an equity person, stocks. And uh, equity people are by nature ec- uh, optimistic and, 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 she, and she's no exception. So, so uh, look, uh, you, there are similarities uh, in, in terms of the damage done uh, between this and, and 08. There are differences as well. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, people make a big thing out of the fact that this one is nobody's fault. And I, I agree with that. Uh, but on the other hand, companies did lever up and, and make themselves uh, vulnerable to exogenous uh, catalysts w- such as we have had. Uh, so, I, I, you know, look, I think that, I think that if people who run companies, if they should expect to pay a price if the companies uh, underperform, and, and I don't think that they have the right to a bailout just because the reasons for the failure are not their fault. Um, but you know, you you highlight the fact that the, that the what everything that the Fed and Treasury are doing now is just a uh, they've just resurrected the playbook from 0809, and it's a playbook that worked. Uh, and th- this goes and and so should it work this time? Well, number one, I do believe that it will produce a recovery. I think it'll be a different recovery because I think that in the in the 0809, the damage was mostly in the in the financial sector. And there was no as, a, a inherent change in life as we know it. And I think that this uh, episode is making changes in life as we know it in areas like you identified, hotels, airlines, uh, movie theaters, sports, uh, and uh, casinos, and uh, retail, and things like that. There, things are fundamentally changing, even in retail, real estate, uh, working from home rather than going to the office. So there, you know, we're going to have a much more, it's like a snow globe. You know, it, it, you shake up a snow globe and then the it, things are in motion or a mobile. There's much more in, in play now than last time. And it's not like just injecting a little liquidity is going to bring everything back to normal. Uh, but we will have recovery. It's going to take a few years, in my opinion. Um, and um, then the other question is the we go back to Ellie Vanier's question: uh, What is the long-term impact of the rescue? And the fact that the fact that the stimulus and uh, bond buying, qualitative quantitative easing engaged in last time, the fact that it didn't produce any damage doesn't mean that if you do ten times as much now, it's still not going to produce any damage. And that's really the open question. And, and uh, I'm, I'm very proud to say I have no idea what the answer is. <laughs> Admiral Blair, I'm going to jump a bit, has um, asked if we could touch on the racial uh, equality issue uh, uh, some more. And, you know, uh, I think Tracy Stewart's also asked a question about what else um, uh, we can do. And, you know, I, I do believe, as I said, that um, and. I, I am an equity person and an optimist by nature as well, as Howard said. I do think this time is different in that um, when you see uh, the difference in the participation in the protests and the diversity 
of the participation in the protest. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why it's going to be different. I made my comments earlier about how I think company CEOs are evaluating this and look in the heat of the moment, who knows, it matters a lot more um, what happens um, in the next six months than the next six minutes, which is the kind of environment that we're in. Um, but but I think that what, what I would like to see and what we're going to be doing with our companies is to think about the things they can do in their company and in their community to support this. So let, let's talk about one of the biggest levers. I think President Obama talked about this. It is um, voting. All right. And so if you are a corporation, you run a corporation, um, why don't you um, foster a voting drive at your company? Um, you know, have it done in your facilities or, you know, through your email to, to uh, have people check their status and, and have them register to vote. And then let's not wait for the government to create a day when uh, uh, it's a national holiday to vote. Give your employees the time they need to vote, whether it's giving them off that, that day or giving them off when the, the time they want to do it. Um, these are the kind of things that, that companies will have to do to show that they, they care about this issue. Um, then it's about, of course, just the, the blocking and tackling of looking at your own um, employee population and, and see if it represents the, the communities that you're in. Um, see if you have the, the participation you know, across um, the, the management ranks there. Um, see what you're doing in terms of vocational training. It's a lot of hard work. Um, it requires focus. By management, I, I do think that um, I was listening to something Condoleezza Rice said the other day in a um, in a presentation, and she said, um, "Now acknowledge all the difficulties, but also said, you know, she grew up in Alabama, and said if if George Floyd was killed when I was um, when I was young, you never would have heard a thing about it." And so we have made progress. Um, but there is much, 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 much more to do. And I think looking in the mirror and, and saying that about your own company and saying, look, we're not, we're happy with this. We're not happy with this um, is what's required. And, and we're going to have to see if people can maintain the focus to do that. Uh, that's my perspective. I mean, Howard, maybe you want to bring some of what you put in your incredibly elegant, um, um, uh, eloquent memo today. Thank you, uh, Chris. Sure, uh, I agree with Chris that we don't, we shouldn't wait for the government and all those of us in the private sector can do a lot, uh, but I don't think we can do enough. And I do think, I still think we need leadership. The biggest single problem facing the world, facing the country today, in my opinion, and the root cause of the inequality is education. And, you know, when I was a kid, I went to the public schools in New York and I got a perfectly good education, uh, not, not a great education, but adequate to, to uh, go off to college. Uh, I heard a presentation from a, an organization called SEO, Seeking Educational Opportunities, which takes care of, of, of kids in high school. And, and the young man was describing uh, the terrible high school he was supposed to go to until SEO rescued him. And guess what? It was my high school, but just just 60 years later. And uh, you, we have to be able to give people a good education in the public schools. <clears throat> and that's one example. And I think I, I honestly think that we need changes in the tax code, because I think the tax code is is uh, 
cobbled together by people changing this and changing that and changing that and changing that. And I think there's no overall consistency or, or equity. I personally believe that, that diff different forms of uh, income should be taxed the same or, or, uh, or certainly similarly. Uh, and I, I personally believe that, uh, that we are at a low ebb in terms of progressive progressivity and that it should be more progressive, but that's a personal opinion. But the point is, I think, I think we, 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 private enterprise can do a lot, but only so much. And we need government to change some things. I think, by the way, Tracy's question on organizations, SEO is a great one. We, we use them and I think they're, they're quite, um, they're, they're quite good. Um, Howard Newman, I think you had one as well. Howard Newman always has a good question. <laughs> Thanks, Howard. Actually, I gave a podcast today, Howard, where I started out by saying, I'm going to begin this by saying that I heard Howard Marks mention that if you've seen one crisis, you've seen one crisis. Uh, and therefore, everyone is different. So my question for you is something I've noticed. So I'm in the private equity business, for those of you who don't know me. And what I see is a huge dichotomy between what the capital markets are seeing, which is very low rates, very low risk premiums, uh, very high leverage. And yet from the portfolio companies we have, we see people have an increased concern about the risk and the concerns about the environment. So whereas the risk premiums seem to have disappeared in the, in the, in the secondary markets or the capital markets, they're magnified now in the real markets. And I wonder if you could comment on that dichotomy and how you would think about it. Well, um, as Chris indicated, when he talked about trying to buy companies, uh, you know, we get we get different behavior uh, from people who own companies, private companies, and are asked to part with them or asked whether they want to lever them up, and people who are who are uh, have the opportunity to buy companies with their own real money, as opposed to consider stocks as as gambling uh, devices, um, uh, and uh, you know. Uh, I think that um, when I went to college, we learned that the separation of management from ownership was one of the things <coughs> that gave the U.S. system its advantage. Because even if if the, if the second or third generation of a family uh, owned a company, they could go out and hire competent management and, and, and get good performance out of it. But in a way, it has gone too far. And sometimes the management is too separated from the owners. And for example, there's, there was a paroxysm of, of stock buybacks over the last five years. And many, many companies went out and bought their stock back, even though it wasn't cheap, uh, but it shrunk the capitalization and enhanced the EPS, which is what management often gets, gets paid on. Uh, and uh, I think that if the management had to go out and spend their own money, uh, to buy the stock, they might not have done it. So I, I do think that, you know, you, you, you get the in behavior that you incentivize. And I think that the behavior has been, uh, the incentives have been skewed by the divorce of management from ownership in the public companies. All right, we've, uh, we've got time for one more and then Bill Galson will close. Um, Neelan Youngblood? Um, it's more of a comment than a question, but first off, I think we have absolutely improved uh, with regard to uh, progress uh, relating to race relations. 
Um, a couple things, even in the current administration, uh, first off, criminal justice reform, reform, enormously important. Number two, opportunity zones, again, I think also transformative. And, uh, and quite frankly, um, this is the highest level of funding for historically black colleges and universities under any administration. So that's on the, on the, on the positive side. I would say that on the uh, rhetoric side, it's been abysmal. I mean, and words do matter. And, and unfortunately, uh, there's not been a very good spokesperson at the top with regard to that. As a private equity investor myself, and someone who served on multiple public and private company boards, I think we can also do a better job. For example, Warner Music just did their IPO last week. There's not a single black person on the board of Warner Music. How could that be? Again, look at your portfolios. Again, I think that investing in the best and brightest among people of color is an important avenue. It may not give you as much pleasure as helping the poor kid down the block, but investing in the best and brightest among us, and then we can hold our own folks accountable and challenge them in ways that other people cannot. So that's, I'd love to hear your reaction. Well, I, I, think, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and uh, I think that the, there is a great emphasis now on diversity and inclusion. I think it's, it's at a level it's never been before. I think it, it, it is sure to produce progress. Um, I know that if we develop a, a, uh, a highly qualified underrepresented employee, we tend to lose them to somebody else who wants to bid, buy them, bid them away and pad the stats. Um, but, you know, I, I, look, I really believe that what happened uh, last month it, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. We've had a lot of straws, but, I, but this one feels different. And, uh, you know, you have people of both parties coming out to say things that are constructive. Not everybody, but some of them. And, and, and you have both uh, public sector and private sector. I believe, I hope and believe we're going to be seeing progress. I'm optimistic. I, I would say access to capital, though, is enormously important in terms of creating right. access to opportunity. Right. And so we need to be focused on that with regard to, you know, black and brown businesses. So. Right. Very good. No, no question. <laughs> All right, Mr. Galston, you want to bring us home? Yeah, sure. It's my pleasure. Look, let me just begin by saying that no Labels is enormously grateful. I can't say just how grateful, because words fail me, uh, for your willingness uh, to share with us and with people who are key, key to us uh, what you shared today. Uh, I've been taking notes frantically. It's like being in back in graduate school. Uh, and let me just play back to you some things that you said to underscore them, because I think they're really so important for the future of this organization. Uh, Howard, almost in passing, you said, and I wrote it down, people on this call don't have an ax to grind. We just want the truth. Amen. Why do we want the truth? Well, uh, you wouldn't dream of making investments on false premises if you could possibly avoid it, why should we do anything different for public policy, right? Public policy that isn't built on a foundation of truth is built on quicksand. It's going to crumble. It will not solve the problem it was intended to solve. 
you know, second, you know, what we heard today was, you know, experience, cleverness, experience, judgment, and humility. Uh, you both said in different ways, we have to know what we don't know. Because if we pretend to know something that we don't, once again, we're building our policy or our investments on quicksand. Uh, you both talked about corporate responsibility. Uh, Chris, you know, your comments about voting, I thought were remarkably uh, farsighted and challenging, and it would be fantastic you know, if no labels leaders could get together uh, to promote the kind of program you put on the table. Howard, you underscored a point that no labels has been making in a number of its proposals when you said that uh, you thought that all forms of income should be taxed about the same. Boy, wouldn't it be revolutionary if, if, if people you know shared that view and pushed for it in our tax system? All of this put together means that no labels has emerged from this hour wiser and better prepared for sound public policy making uh, than we were when we began. And that is exactly what these sessions are supposed to accomplish. Uh, we couldn't have done it without you and we cannot continue to move forward without you. Uh, thank you for your leadership and thanks to everybody on this call for participating. Thank you, you Bill, thank you. and for your contribution to everything we do for the mission. Absolutely. And thanks everybody for the good questions. Howard Marks and Chris Stadler focus a lot on the disconnect between the stock market and the economy. As they note, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department have infused the market with unprecedented stimulus, which was necessary to keep the economy afloat, but has also inflated the price of various assets. But as Marx says, the markets have the ability to go from flawless to hopeless and back again very quickly, so expect plenty of volatility ahead. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.